You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM, and that was our spotlight song for the hour, throwing back to 2002 as we celebrate 50 years of Tune FM rocking your airwaves. We've got a little treat coming up for you next. Kay Nankivis will be joining us, speaking with Dr. Kate Dowd, a media studies academic here at the University of New England in Armadale. Kay Nankivis is an academic at the School of Communication and Creative Industries at Charles Stoke University over in Bathurst, and for many years she worked as a radio and TV journalist at the ABC, as well as stints at SBS and in commercial radio, both here and over in the UK. Kay will be speaking with Dr. Kate Dowd in regards to her new book for the first ever Zoom Tune book launch and that's coming up right now on 106.9 Tune FM, your home of UNE's student-powered radio. Hi, Kate Dowd is a media studies academic at the University of New England and this year she's published a new book titled Digital Journalism, Drones and Automation. It's published by Oxford University Press and over the next half hour or so I'll be talking with Kate about some of the themes and ideas in her book. With so many changes and challenges for journalists in recent years, Kate's book helps us to understand some of the dizzy post-human elements of online data and social media intersecting with news. However, news is not journalism and the design of data associated with news stories is highly organised and structured for predictive analytics with a myriad of human and ethical questions. We'll discuss many of these points shortly and welcome to this multi-platform event that is the first ever Zoom Tune book launch, a visually mediated launch for those of you joining us today on Zoom via video. Welcome to Tune FM listeners in Armadale coming out of the University of New England and to online Tune FM listeners around the globe. Welcome also to Oxford University Press listeners via dedicated social media outlets. Kate, let's begin with some thoughts and ideas about journalists in the 21st century. What and how have you captured some of those ideas in the book and for what end? Good afternoon, Kay. Good afternoon, listeners. Um, thank you for tuning in. Um, look, journalism in the 21st century is, is clearly uh, had, had its difficulties and, of course, we've had additional difficulties uh, this year with the pandemic. Um, but, look, the, the book is offering a lot of ideas for the future of journalism and that future is one that is going to be embedded in the online environment and it will be dependent on, you know, vocabulary that we don't yet know for the, the field of journalism. And so what the book does is it provides insights into the concepts and processes in journalism um, towards sort of the idea of, of having values embedded, if you like, ultimately in ethics, uh, you know, in ethical systems online. Um, but to start that, you have to actually build uh, a, a decent vocabulary for a domain. So let's think about news, for example. News, online news, has extensive thousands and thousands of tags um, that relate to news concepts. But journalism doesn't have a single tag of its own. It uses tags. It's reactive. Um, so what I did was um, the book concludes, you know, for journalists, drawings done by journos, um, to elicit, if you like, the vocabulary or the potential vocabulary that would be uh, informing future systems. Um, so that's quite a unique vocabulary, as you can imagine. You know, journos use certain words. Uh, th those words can ultimately inform design and ultimately they can also be embedded in ethics um, and algorithms um, embedded into those, uh, ethics embedded into those algorithms. And, of course, this is also about automated decision-making. 
So, uh, so new systems for journalists, journalism uh, and journalists is, is not just about news. It's about news values. And I think that's, you know, news values and journalism values, as you know, okay, are not exactly the same thing. Uh, so what this project and what the book explains is a set of ideas to kind of build uh, or potentially build systems. So it doesn't tell you, yes, we're going to build this like a modular unit from Kmart or something like that that you're going to put together. But it actually uh, has a semantic approach. And that semantic approach is the world, of course, that is, is online now, used well by, you know, various media moguls. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's essentially, it's a semantic search and the importance of search uh, and I can talk about that a little bit, um, if you would like, Kate. Well, clearly semantic search, as you've just said, is the way of the online world. What does it actually mean then? And do media moguls, for instance, like Rupert Murdoch, head of News Corp, use these methods? And if so, what are some of the key features in recent okay. years? Okay. Uh, well, uh, in the book, I explain quite a lot around uh, Rupert's uh, uh, intersections with semantic search and also the intersections with Facebook. And uh, I'll talk about that in more detail as we, we get through uh, talking about the book. But the, the essence of semantic search is that it provides relational context. So when you're searching for something and cross-referencing, just like with machine intelligence, you're cross-referencing and matching, if you like, and reasoning about online resources. Of course, we're most familiar with the reasoning of online resources in terms of, you know, does this advert or does this uh, point match with an advert and so on. Um, and and they're the things that really annoy us, but they are also the principles by which you can re-engineer, if you like. Uh, so using cross-referencing, using matching, uh, using reasoning. So I'm talking about logic and those kinds of things that are that built into algorithms um, and, and they could be repurposed. So a good example for understanding relational context and, and meaning would be, say, for example, in media, the BBC have a, a fantastic global media enterprise. Now, you imagine there's all these online resources to actually access those, to sort them out whenever ever someone types into their search engine. You know, they need a damn good system that's that's got structure uh, and it's using semantics correctly. Um, for those ends. So look, there's there's practical examples like that. And then there's the examples where we have great commercial interests and partnerships. And they're, the, they're some of the problematic areas. And we know that from even recent events in the Australian sort of uh, rejigging for laws and code, um, you know, around sharing news stories. But uh, even without going into that, because the book doesn't go into that too much, th those partnerships that exists, like between um, Storyful, owned by Rupert Murdoch. Murdoch and Zuckerberg. Um, and Zuckerberg, Facebook. So Facebook Journalism, Facebook Newswire, uh, and so on. That um, They're all important. And because they're playing in this field, in this area, if you like, with semantic search. Um, so uh, in the book, I refer to news media riding the social media train to big data lakes and swimming amongst large data sets for data farming, but, but at unknown depths. So the importance of data and search obviously goes all the way into job titles as well when it comes to news and journos. So uh, SEO editors, search engine optimization editors. No longer is a journalist just an editor. You're a search engine optimization editor. And then there's more roles that I'll talk about you know, um, as we go through this, uh, today here over lunch, oh, whilst people are trying to digest. 
Oh, sorry to cut you off, Kate, but I'm not, I'm not sure if you've already touched on this yet, but you do state in the book, because we're already talking about Murdoch and Zuckerberg and News Corp, yes. um, that you state in the book that partnerships between Murdoch and Zuckerberg are not strictly a commercial block, forcing competition, say, with Google. And, and what do you mean by that? You, you right, well... Yeah, good. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, the, the point here is that there are partnerships between, for example, Story Storyful and Facebook Newswire. So what that what they're doing is bringing their worlds of their worlds of data and data sharing closer. So this is creating effectively big data. Um, so this can tell. This is used to tell more about online stories because, as I mentioned at the front, we were talking about reasoning, but actually there's also this point about patterns and finding patterns in behavior, online behaviours. So the idea of that is to pitch advertising um, and Murdoch actually relies on Google's uh, search engines and machine intelligence for that uh, through cloud servers. So, so it's actually strategic um, collaboration and competition at the same time, which is quite an interesting mix. So it's not just like their competitors at all. And this must be a headache for organisations like when we call it the Australian uh, Consumer and Competition Commission, because it's not just competition, it's, <laughs> there's great collaboration, there's, there's a huge irony in this. Um, but in the, the partnerships that we've talked about, smaller news media publishers also rely on Facebook and Google, and they really are dependent on their algorithms. So, so this has become more topical. We know this sort of dependency on algorithms and even changing, uh, you know, things in recent times that around uh, traffic referrals and so on. This can be this can be a problem. Like it's used to di to di um, diversify sources, um, but they but the smaller players are competing with the bigger players and they really haven't got much of a chance. So I try to explain this in the book. Um, and also you've got to realise, I think, uh, well, people need to realise that the um, the bigger players are also employing things like people like trends journalists. So they're really on top of analytics for, for trends, what's trending and viral video journalists. These are some of the new roles that, for example, uh, Rupert Murdoch for Storyful, his comp Irish company, he bought it for $21-plus million in Ireland, uh, you know, that, that company uh, is employing roles that you've never seen before in journalism. So, look, uh, Chapter 5, sorry? I was going to say, such as, what do you mean that we've never seen before in journalism, just not, not journalists and well, not sub-editors? Well, we're viral video journalists. I mean, you know, who in your era of, of being a journalist, uh, did you have a viral video journalist? I don't think so. You know, I don't want to show my age, but no. No. <laughs> so there we go. So chapter five in the book is about decoding search and partnerships. And But, you know, I note in the book that it's anathema that a social media news agency, which is what they're called, like Storyful, owned by Murdoch, can claim to seek, say, solutions for fake news whilst investing in trends and viruses. You know, so that there's a conflict there. Uh, MIT Research also, interestingly enough, uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology in recent years also showed that fact-checking even increases online traffic. So fact-checking is, is, is a bit problematic as well. It's not as holistic as it first appears. You mean because it generates content and fresh content and gets treated yeah, that way? that's right. It's traffic, it generates traffic. Yeah, okay. Um, in, in the book... Um, and I don't know if you want me to mention the page number, page 81, there's a quote about data from News Corp CEO. I, I, 
Rupert Murdoch, I suppose, um, that reads, we well, have... Well, no, but it's not Rupert, it's not Rupert, but it's Thompson, but that's fine, it's the CEO, not, yeah. Okay, look, I always just think CEO is always going to mean Rupert, but of course the structure's right. changed over the years, yeah. hasn't it? Um, but we have, it says, we have sophisticated data about our readers. We have increasingly sophisticated data at realtor.com about what zip codes people are looking at. And we're able to use content as a mechanism, as a mechanic for getting more data about people. Now, Kate, you respond, of course, to this metaphor of the mechanic in the book to help us understand what this really means. So let's listen to your reading of a passage from the book on this point. The mechanic metaphor in the data world could hardly be a reference to a data manager. Rather, it is more likely to be a semantic search technique where relationships across data are designed. Semantic data is based on a collection of triples, the subject, the predicate and the object but they're not designed with a ratchet or a screwdriver by a mechanic. News Corp's reference to sophisticated data suggests data farming via partnerships between news media and real estate, and data at the edges of data sets across domains would have mutual benefits. Of course, reasoning about data leads to automated decision-making, to pitch advertising or content to consumers and to boost traffic to sites. Here, we see the manipulation of humans achieved by the tacit structures of language for data, which are tweaked with values assigned by programmers. So digital disruption has become a badge for the exploitation of human beings. On the one hand, collaboration benefits news and journalism, and on the other hand, there could be another agenda. Free events with innovation experts lead us to Google's ranked brain, and high-end AI to exploit data via search that may also automate the ratchets in Murdoch's sophisticated garages. But if a semantic hummingbird can one day even pass a sentence like that in a meaningful way, yet with little or no healthy meaning for a healthy society, then journalism has won. Shortly after this passage in your book, you state that the real challenge for journalism is to set the standards on the limits of AI so that they don't distract from the real tasks of political reporting, court reporting, reporting from conflict zones down to investing in human interest stories and long and slow form journalism. That's your quote. What else does your book suggest about the future of automation, even robots in journalism? Well, um, I think what's most important is to make a distinction between automation and robots. So I don't think any day soon uh, a robot's going to turn up to the Sydney Morning Herald or stand out the front of a court and start reporting. Uh, you see that in films, of course, science fiction films. But there was, I think it was in China, uh, a robot that could write an article of 300 uh, characters in one second uh, in 2017, uh, but it couldn't conduct face-to-face -face interviews. So, so the idea of robots is, is kind of out there for the journalism domain, uh, but of course there, there's a lot of issues. And, there, and I have heard that there were some um, reports of uh, research done that haven't been revealed because they were so scared about them. But one, one area where automated uh, journalism does work uh, and does exist is where you've got a significant amount of sort of data context. So sport reporting, for example, uh, I think Forbes, for example, also use you know data, financial uh, reporting. 
So it, it's not actually, um, you know, it is actually out there. But I think the main point about automation is more to do with the back end of the systems that, that we're familiar with to some extent and the ideas of analytics and how analytics impact on editorial decisions and extend to even, you know, the popularity of certain journalists. I mean, that's a new phenomenon that, that journalists can be determined by, by data and, and that they can be employed by that. And also particular types of stories. Now, for those listeners who are familiar with news values and journalism values, they will realise that there's not, I mean, there's issues like proximity and, and uh, you know, the, the, the likability of someone and so on. But, you know, is that really what we want for society? So they're the, the ethical sides of what we uh, should be thinking about. And so the book is trying to to explain that you can take some control of this through, you know, redesigning uh, some of your your own world, the journalism world, and also thinking about how that can be embedded into future algorithms. So, um, you know, there's, for example, I'll, I'll just give you an example at the, at the technical level. There's thousands of predefined formal tags that are already used in online news. And I mean literally thousands and multiple systems of those tags. So, so news is highly defined. And that's how news has also become commodified because it's through search that if you haven't got a tag, you can't search for something. But if you've got a tag and you create a tag, you can search for it. But the other side of that is that premiums are required for you to take out, you know, if you want access to certain tags and you're a news media organisation, you have to pay the premiums for those tags. So some people just can't possibly afford, you know, the Thomson Reuters and, and the various different groups that have developed these tags over the years. Some of those companies have changed too, so don't quote me on names there, but they they have changed and, and there's different levels of access for news and journalism. So it's the language of meta tags um, that need to be embedded in algorithms and journalism has to play a part in that because they're used for reasoning about online resources. Um, so as I've said, journalism doesn't have its own structured tags. It relies on the language of news systems now integrated with social media hubs as well and back-end access agreements like APIs, what they call APIs. So news media, um, whether it's the ABC or someone else, has agreements with social media using what they call API keys. So it's app application protocol interface keys. So it's not the same as you and I having access to Facebook. It's a, it's a set agreement. And those set agreements are, are where... You know, yeah, there's a mutual benefit there to build your audience if you're a, a news media organisation. Um, but also, if you change the algorithms and you change the tags and things, then that creates a problem because the news media organisations then have to go with the flow of the big giants, if you like. So that's part of the issue. Um, but look, one of the key things here about automation, which is what you started with uh, here on this point, is about the need for the design of new systems. So automation is not just going to happen by osmosis. It has to be designed. So that means that we really need a deeper understanding of journalism and the ways to think about the domain and its values um, and also think in terms of future data. And I think this is important before we can seriously get to, you know, embedding ethics. So we're a long way from embedding ethics. Um, but values. I think it's uh, yeah. Ethical values. Yeah. Ethical values. <laughs> well, ethics or ethical values because values can don't necessarily aren't necessarily ethical yes, in media. Absolutely. Sometimes, 
values are, are just market driven or whatever, or agenda driven. And so this, I suppose, what you're saying is why chapters seven and eight in the book on game design and the semantic cat method for journalism are important. Um, for the design of future systems that work for journalists and journalism, you propose a participatory approach to early design ideas called the semantic cat method. And several years ago, you conducted a series of workshops with journalists and managed to get journalists talking and drawing about themselves using this method. Um, one participant journalist described a typical newsroom, and I can sort of relate to this, but even though I didn't work in newspapers, but I worked in a busy TV newsroom for a long time and radio newsrooms, as a high-pressured rabbit warren. Um, it certainly was in my day. I've heard it's a lot quieter these days, the way things happen. But tell us more about these approaches for the design of, of new systems. Oh, look, it's a fabulous description. Um, I must say I roared when, she, when I read that uh, in the workshop, what she'd written. Um, I won't name who it was. It was someone from Four Corners, though, um, on the ABC. Uh, look, so the book does include rough participatory drawings done by journalists in their professional capacity. So the idea was to understand the processes and the, and the concepts that you would best describe as tacit knowledge, yeah, so trying to take that tacit knowledge, turning it into explicit knowledge, that was one of the key uh, functions of the participatory workshops. Uh, the CAT method itself that you talk about there um, is a participatory method that I came up with that I actually designed myself based on uh, substantial kind of background research already in participatory design methods. And I did it so that it would include a, a more of a focus on, on potential, building potential data so that, so that, and language and semantic were, you know, so the use of semantics. So it was quite um, precise in some ways, um, but I think the various documents that were, you know, used in that weren't too onerous for participants. Uh, and the drawings of newsrooms and trigger ideas, some of them were, like the Rabbit Warren, for example, was, I think, fantastic for a, a game maze idea to, as a way of starting, uh, you know, maybe thinking about learning systems for journalism. And then those learning systems, of course, can be used, you know, further down the track when you're thinking about, you know, actual systems for automation. So fair way, you know, fair way down. Um, but interaction design was one of the, the elements there as well. So not just data, but the, the that, that semantic cat method was, was thinking about interactions uh, online. Um, so, you know, it's informed by sort of multidisciplinary ideas here. Um, and of course, some listeners will know that I was part of an interaction design group at the University of Melbourne uh, some years ago. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been teaching media, of course, uh, at UNE for some years now as well. Um, but, you know, the culmination of that approach uh, allowed me to uh, come up with ideas that I could never have come up with. So, for example, uh, the, the development of uh, what you'd call finite state machines to show how a synthetic player might be represented. Uh, and one example was uh, what I called RoboJourno, and it was a model so you could show just a, sing a single kind of process um, approach to how to um, 
deal with a press release and you would have some familiarity with what happens to press releases uh, that get into newsrooms. Sometimes journalists just throw them in the rubbish bin, they flip them, uh, they have to make judgments and calls about, you know, is this uh, spin, just spin, is there some validity to this press release? It doesn't matter if it's paper or digital, it's the same principle really. It's, it's information that's come from outside and it, it requires those processes of journalism to verify the story or the, the, the information before them before they decide whether it's newsworthy, right? So, um, so the finite state machine was about automating some of that idea. So really, it's it's an abstraction for a base of a machine of machine intelligence um, that could be used for journalism training, for example. And there are multiple examples of that that I developed that are presented in the book. Um, so uh, so the journalists did some fantastic drawings. Um, and they showed things like judgments and decisions that they're making in the field all the time. And, and that, that was highly informative because there was a sort of universal sense uh, from the combination of drawings around certain things. And so that's a classic um, participatory approach where you can have some kind of sense, consensus uh, about a particular uh, set of ideas um, or a scenario in journalism. Um, one of the other things that I did, uh, so I, actually I'll just backtrack a little bit. So good examples would be where you're reporting in a conflict zone, okay, and uh, you're, you've got an insurgent who might be pointing a gun at you and what kinds of decisions do you make as a journalist reporting in the field. Um, then there's things like uh, thinking about other ways to protect journalists, you know, like so, for example, if you're reporting uh, in the, the Middle East or somewhere, mobile phones can be tracked um, by by your enemies as well. So those kinds of things. So, so you need some kind of systems and the book does offer uh, some kind of uh, introductory level uh, systems to protect journalists. But there's other things about reporting in the field as well. Well, it's just amazing the combination of having broken down the decisions that journalists make and what they do combined with this forensic understanding you have of what's happening in the background that most of us have got no idea about. It's an amazing contribution. And um, and I suppose these chapters work towards building, I, I, I think you've told me, a, a, an ontological base of knowledge for the journalism domain. So tell yeah. us more about how the domain has changed and what that means in terms of future data. Well, I mean, the ontological term, I mean, the word, the term ontology and ontological thinking um, is across multiple disciplines. Um, in the sense I've used it here and, the, and in the book, it is actually from computing. So ontology uh, engineering is the correct term. And the, the idea of an ontology it has some overlaps with philosophy, of course, where an ontology is simply about understanding what's in a domain. So if you think about an ontological base for journalism, there's a lot of tacit knowledge amongst journalists that's not shared. And sadly, a lot of that knowledge is lost with the uh, cutbacks in recent years um, of journalists um, worldwide, globally. And so the idea is to say there's a need to preserve some of that ontological base. So I certainly haven't mapped every decision, by the way, I'll just make that clear now that a journalist makes, but there are some typical examples of uh, decisions that are made. Um, and I think even though the field has changed to some extent in, in, in many different ways, uh, one example that's discussed in the book in a, an entire chapter is around the reporting during the asylum seeker crisis in 2015, the European asylum seeker crisis, um, I discussed how uh, journalists were, you know, using new, new methods in the field 
and communicating in real time. Now, that might sound simple, but actually it's not so long ago that um, journalists were having to go back into studios with their stories, uh, like even only probably three or four years ago, that you would go back in with your story and it would take a little bit of time. It might be within the hour or two. But when you're reporting, say, in the field, there were a lot of experimental um, ideas and things that happened um, using social media uh, and using drones, for example, uh, reporting the trails of the asylum seekers as they, you know, uh, were rescued at sea um, by people, you know, using drones, reporters. And everyone remembers some kind of image of, of that period, 20. 14, 2015. I mean, it was the biggest migration of, of um, asylum seekers uh, since World War II, apparently. So, look, the methods for reporting that, um, you know, are, are kind of part of the changes. Um, but it's also really, I think, uh, so in addition to the, the conventional uh, values and approaches, there's also this idea that we still need to get back to the ontological models uh, and think about the things. And I say the things because in the ontology engineering world, uh, data is like it, it's it's only data once it's already data. But if you've got an idea or a concept and it's still a thing, yeah, and it hasn't been made into data, then it's a thing just to be a bit semantic there. Um, so these things can inform, uh, you know, the formal vocabulary, and that's that's what's essential for for future systems, I, I believe. And, it, and it's a long way to go, but the book does, it doesn't only have a blue cover, it's a little bit of a blueprint in some ways for someone to say, hey, what could, could happen here that's, you know, useful um, for future development? An explosion in vocabulary, and it seems that language in systems as a special relationship to computations. So in the final chapter on big data, cloud servers, natural language processing, word vectorization, and even a mention of deep learning, what mm. are you trying to tell us about the way of the future and the fate of language as we know it okay. in relation to online technology? Well, look, I, th I mean, I think the first thing I want to say is that um, our media moguls like Rupert and our social media entrepreneurs like Zuckerberg, these people are all are very, very abreast of um, these these kind of uh, intersections between language and data and how important it is for semantic search. Um, so, look, the atomization of language does seem to fit with the atomization of data. Now, when we think about news stories. Uh, there are topic segments, story titles, the names of journalists, keywords, and then all other kinds of features that exist as data. So already there's a certain amount of atomization uh, in terms of the stories. And these are then, you, through the search process, these are then divided up further and things are matched and paired. And, you know, someone's commodifying and making something out of those new findings, the new patterns that they discover from the big data. But journalism is not making anything out of that. So all I'm saying here is there's a special relationship, but also there's ways when we think about the speed, if we think about the speed at which data is processed, it's quite staggering. And to try and understand that, things like word vectorization, which I think you just threw in there, that's in the book, word vectorization is important because what it does is it allows the it's a computational model, if you like, that allows um, a system to 
find patterns between in a spatial kind of plane, if you like, uh, between words to, to remove connotations of words. So there's this constant processing of does this word mean this or does it mean that or does it mean something else? And, and that's all based on this trigonometry of, you know, of word vectorization that's used. Um, and, and most people don't realise that. They don't understand that that's what's happening at the back end. All we know is the most obvious things that we're being matched because we just did a search for, you know, a new chair or something. And now you're suddenly seeing 20 new chairs. I always find it amusing that you're seeing the chairs after you've already bought a chair. You know, like it doesn't quite make sense. Um, but at the same time, these things are called predictive analytics. So they're now predicting what, what next you're going to buy, you know, and, and spitting out something else at you. But imagine if you could flip that and use some of that kind of approach for journalism that could really enliven journalism um, like we've never seen before. So word vectorization is an interesting one. I do try to explain it a little bit. Natural language processing is also, you know, a part of that. Um, there's a few geeky things in that final chapter in the book, but I do, I do think it builds up to that. Uh, and I think anyone who can read through the entire book uh, needs a medal, uh, and it's not bedtime reading. Um, so, look, there is a description in the book of uh, connotations and meaning in data, which is really what we, we're talking about here. Um, and I have got a slightly cynical uh, reading on that that you might pick up in uh, the extract from this book um, about word vectorization. Okay, well, let's listen then to a short reading from the book. Word vectorization is used to create relational meaning between words based on arbitrary spatial relations across words, plotted by the angle of the hypotenuse and an adjacent border. But should we be convinced that a cosine vector representation can remove all connotations of words in a set text in natural language processing? As mathematics is applied to language for semantic models, data scientists and automated search engines continue to paint over words with cosine laws and other magic formulas that further segments language. Yet data programmers and data scientists are not necessarily artists or journalists, leaving journalists and other scholars to consider what data science does to language and their domains. Indeed, backend search techniques provide the backdrop to better understand the need for new ontology engineering. For journalism, these approaches may even help to reclaim language and use it in revised ways that would be more meaningful for society than current systems. So context and meaning um, is at work in so many online systems and yet journalism itself has to create new models to assert its own context and meanings for future systems. In the book, Kate, you also discuss drones and journalism and listeners can read the book to learn more on that topic. Um, the time has come though, Kate, ah, to, to officially launch your wonderful book, uh, which as I've already said, provides forensic detail. You said it's not bedtime reading, but I don't think there is any other text which unpacks exactly what's going on in the background. And if people really want to understand exactly what is happening and how all these mechanisms work, 
your book is it. it. It will be the volume. It will be the seminal text that tells us what's going on. And so it's a book also that looks to the future of journalism and forces us to reflect on the dizzy intersections uh, across news, journalism, social media and search. So a toast for this, I only have a glass of water at this time of the day, um, but a toast for this well-researched book in 2020 that will continue to have relevance for years to come. It's an amazing achievement, Kate. Thank you, Kate. Such uh, glowing uh, contributions there. And I'd, I also should thank um, all the people who helped me along the way to realise the book uh, because it is many years of work. Some of it, as you know, started a little bit back at CSU. Um, but I'd like to thank the editors who are probably not listening, but they may be listening online ultimately at Oxford University Press, uh, various journalists uh, and people from the ABC specifically um, who assisted me, especially uh, back in 2015, uh, and academics like Tom Morton and also yourself, Kay, uh, and all these people are acknowledged in the front of the book. So it's an OUP, uh, Oxford University Press, uh, Global OUP. I, I do have a copy of the book here. I can hold it up for you. It's got lots of tags in it. Um, but I, I can't obviously, um, you know, literally sign your book uh, here on uh, radio. Um, but you can, if you're in Armidale, for example, you can probably order it downtown through Reader's Companion or just go online if you're elsewhere. Global, um, OUP Global uh, is, is, is where it's available. So thanks again, everyone, for listening on Tune FM, our first Zoom tune. And um, yeah. Great, Kate. And also in the background behind me, you can also see a cover of Kate's book. And as Kate said, it's available via Oxford University Press Global if you're not in Armidale and the, the, the local bookshop that Kate named. Um, and fantastic. So wonderful to, to work with you, Kate, in the past. You've always been a fabulous colleague and a fantastic support to me. And this, yeah, <laughs> this book has been a long time in the making and it's had so many stages of meticulous research by you. It's such a valuable contribution and uh, really does open up and explain um, for people who need and want to understand how news decision-making is made consciously or unconsciously uh, in, the, in the new internet new media world and thank you also to everyone for tuning in wherever you are we're going out now with a music track from charlotte church and this one is called dream a dream thank you <laughs>